All right, friends, welcome back to the show. It is my honor today to be joined again by Father James Martin. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm great. It's always great to be back with you. I love being on your show. It's been what? How many, like three or four times now? Four or five times? It's it. Yeah, there, there's been quite a few to the point where whenever I get an email from your publicist, publicist saying you've got a book, I'm like, yeah, just book it. I don't care what the book <laughs> is. Right. I'll read it. I'm sure I'll like it. Right. But let's just go ahead and schedule it right away. It's like a cookbook yeah. on you know how to cook uh, corn on the cob or something. Fine, have them on. Well, I mean, some of your books are a little bit more inflammatory and cause a little bit more pushback. Uh, like prayer, I feel like everyone's for mm-hmm. that. I feel like um, the story that we're going to talk about today, everyone's for mm-hmm. it. So, uh, you know, some have uh, you know a little more combustible yeah. nature than others. But yeah, let's yeah. do it. Just one, the one, the one, one did, but the rest <laughs> of them are all pretty, you know, straight down the middle. So happy to be with you. Yes, I'm excited to have you here. Um, it is uh, it's football season, and you know, you're an Eagles fan. I'm a Cowboys fan. It's, uh, oh, he's, he's putting on I the wore this. Oh, I, wow. I, I did not wear this for you. I wore this to, cause it's now fall. So well, I wear my Eagles hat. And that I'll switch from my normal four color pin that I hold in my hands <laughs> in case I have notes to a uh, Dallas Cowboys <laughs> pen to great. kind of balance out. So we'll have to over, overlook that. Being, being that I was born in Philadelphia, my brother is also, who's, who's also born in Philadelphia, loves the Eagles. My dad who's from Dallas, Texas. He actually had a bag of soil from Texas <laughs> in the delivery room so he could say his son was born over Texas soil. Are you kidding that's, me? That's, you know Wait, Texas let me, people. Let, let me like, back this up is, again. This is your dad. Yeah. For for you or for... Yeah, yeah, for me, yeah. So wait, how do you think they, I... they they allowed they allowed someone to bring dirt <laughs> into the operating room where you in a Ziploc bag, okay, like in a was, bag, yeah. like it was sealed oh and all gosh. that. Okay, but, well. Okay, where were you? But you were, so that's you were how, born in Philadelphia, though, right? Uh, yeah, like Phoenixville. I know just where that is. That's something. Oh, yeah, yeah, is yeah. there a plaque there? Should I go and visit it, like a little shrine? Or <laughs> no, because there's a Texas soil, and you know, <laughs> Philly people, Texas. There's oh, always that tension, true. especially during football no, season. That's true too. I know a lot of people who I'm. I'm pretty ecumenical when it comes to football. I mean, I like the. I like the. I root for the Eagles, but I don't like hate other teams. But I know they're. Quite a few people are, in, let's just say, not fans of the Dallas Cowboys. So, even in, even no, in my no. family, but yeah, that's yeah. My mom was from DC, and so she liked the Redskins. And uh, one of the guys I work with who who uh, does our music, his wife, uh, she's from up there, and she's a big Giants fan. And we just beat the Giants, and so she didn't respond to any of my text messages. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) nevertheless but what we're doing here is we're showing that we can build a bridge (laughs) uh, subtle reference um, between different uh, sports affiliations right right here denominations right yeah and denominations too I don't do you think it's a bigger deal to go Protestant Catholic or Cowboys I was just thinking that is there more commonality between Eagles fans who are Protestant Catholic Jewish Muslim (laughs) than there are between Catholics who are Cowboy and uh, Eagles fan. That that's actually interesting. I do know that the big rivalry in the Northeast, I think, really intense, uh, is Boston and New York. I mean, boy, oh yes. boy, they really. Yes. Um, yeah. I was wearing. So I did a lot of my Jesuit training in Boston, and so I have some Boston swag and Red Sox sure. stuff. And and you know, I like the Red Sox, but I'm not like this rabid fan. I was wearing a Red Sox hat once, but without knowing it, in uh, Penn Station in New York City. And I had multiple people, you know, you, you, I forget what I'm, what's, you know, on my head. Yeah. Multiple people take that off. It's like, I, I didn't know what they were talking about. I realized, uh-oh. So, gotta be careful. <laughs> were you wearing your collar? 
Did you have no. the collar on? No, they don't. Okay. Uh, you know, people say other things to me with the collar, but. Uh, oh, really? Oh, people say all sorts of weird things to you when you're in a collar. Hear my confession. Well, I've never worn one. Let me tell you what um, I don't think is right about the Catholic Church. Oh, you know, I guess um, I guess this train's going to get there on time, that kind of stuff. And Hmm. What percent is like positive compared to what negative? What a great question. With the uh, I'd say 90% positive. Good morning. You know, like, so hmm. walking to work today. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Father. Hey, Father. Uh, and then you get people who want to talk about the sex abuse crisis or this or that. Sure. Or a lot of times it's, 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 uh, yeah, you know, I used to be Catholic, but I left the church. I'm like, okay, you know, I just got like, I'm just catching the subway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just getting a coffee. I know. Um, yeah. How often do you tell people on an airplane that you are a priest? I mean, if you have your collar on, obviously you're telling them, but... Yeah, I usually, you know, when I'm flying, I'm not, a, I don't like flying very much. So I like to be like relaxed, you know? Um, and I almost never wear the collar just because I like to be relaxed and like physically, because this is kind of constricting. Yeah. So sure. if people ask, like, what do you do? Um, I'll tell them. But, uh, you know, usually people, planes... Planes are really unpleasant, as you know, and people are just, they just mm-hmm. want to be in their zone. They put in their headphones, they watch their laptop or whatever. So I don't find that a lot of people even talk to you at all on the plane anymore. Really? Well, yeah, I don't. And I, I mean, no, I, I find people just kind of sit in the seat, say hello. They hope you're not going to cough on them or, you know, hog the armrest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so people are usually pretty quiet. But if people ask, I'll tell them, you know, and then, yeah. and then it's just, then you're trapped. Exactly. You know, oh, yeah. you know, I was Maybe, an altar boy and oh my gosh, you know. Yeah. There's it can either be really good or really bad. And maybe in Texas, uh the average passenger is more loquacious and uh friendly than maybe that's New Yorkers. Tough, I'm not gonna say that that's a stereotype. No, that is yeah. that is definitely true. <laughs> but what do people yeah. ask I mean, you know, you must I mean they ask you what you do and what's the response? They're they're positive generally? Well, it depends. I mean sometimes I I'm not going to say I lie, but Father, forgive me if I have. Um, I might obfuscate the truth and say something like, you know, I, I work in the nonprofit sector or I'm a writer. Um, usually I'll just be like, yeah, I'm a pastor. And it'll end the conversation. Sometimes. Really? Okay, here's, a, here's one. Uh, I was getting my hair cut. The same place I've gone for eight years. My friend Morgan cuts my hair and, and comes to our church. She's a wonderful person. And the person across like the you know, alley or whatever. He was a, like a womanizing, like flirting with everyone. It's just like offensive. Like I, I usually don't get offensive. That kind of stuff bothers me, like flirting with someone who's married. And I was like, bro, like I, I felt violent in that moment to be quite honest. And the person's like, he's a pastor. You need to stop. And I was like, yes, that is the first time someone's ever said so that in a context where I was like, yes, thank you. Do that. I don't want to hear this. Let's move Did on. Did it work? Yeah, yeah, he got very quiet. You know, I have so. this image of, I mean, I've spent a little time in Texas, but I have an image of people being more open to pastors, you know, and more open to religion. Uh, Is that accurate? More more friendly towards them? I'll tell you this. I have never had someone be disrespectful to me because I'm a pastor. And honestly, I probably get more respect for it um, just going around like, oh, he's a pastor. Yeah, it, so I would say... of every interaction. I don't leave that 0.1% because I don't remember everything. But yeah, usually it's always positive. Yeah, I mean, I find in New York, so in general, it's 90% positive. In New York, it's maybe like 75% positive because people people can be, you know, it's it's a very secular town and people have all sorts, you know, and there are legitimate reasons why people are upset with the Catholic Church. But um, 
you know, people can be a little snarky and snotty sometimes mm. because I think they they think that you're going to put on airs like or that I'm going to put airs yeah. like, oh, you know, maybe you'll, yeah. you want to go in the subway first and you know, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. yeah, but most most time, look, people in New York are in their own world, so <laughs> they're not really. They, and the other thing is, someone could walk down the street, you know, on a, a stilts, you know, with their hair painted pink, you know, dressed like a unicorn, and people would not bat an eye. That's one of the nice things no. about New York. Not bat that an is eye, New York. You know, like well, people might do that in Florida, but it's for different <laughs> reasons. Uh, but New York is just too busy. What? How low would the uh, like? popularity percentage like how like if you had five percent nice 95 percent i mean like, is there a percent where you'd be like you know what i'm gonna move to texas because if you could come to austin we could you might switch to church of christ that might be a little bit different for you but what percent would have to be for you to leave new york oh boy uh well you know i'm missioned here as a jesuit so but i think uh maybe if it would i don't know that's <laughs> Wait, what does mission mean you know it's funny it is a cultural thing um because you know i'll tell you something i gave a talk to um an LDS group, uh, Latter-day Saints group, uh, which is not a mm-hmm. community that I know very much about, um, at, at Utah State University the other night uh, on, on Zoom. They were so yep. nice and so friendly and so polite. And I just thought, boy, this is a better reception <laughs> you know, than, than most Catholic uh, groups one would get, not just me. And I also think it, it is something cultural. I remember vividly going to... Um, North Carolina when I was a, a young man and working at GE and a woman who worked there, I was out at dinner and they were so nice to me. I won't do a North Carolina accent, but hi, how are you? How's this? How's that? You know, how are you doing? Is this yeah. okay? And, and I remember I said to this friend of mine who's from North Carolina, what's wrong with the waitress? And my friend said, she's being nice. <laughs> <laughs> what's wrong like, is your first thought. Like, why is yeah. she, what's going on? So, uh, but I, I, I really enjoy um, parts of the country where people are generally, and I think Texas is like generally more polite and, and kinder yeah. and, and more uh, friendly. I, I like it. It's just New York is not yeah. that place. <laughs> so No, there's a lot of great things about New York. Uh, friendliness might not be high on yeah. that list. To the point where my wife, who is born and raised Austin, Texas, anytime someone's rude, she's like, they must be from up north. And I was like... <laughs> Lindsay, I'm from up north. My so mom's from up north. Not ev- and then maybe that is the reason she says that. Maybe she's just like, it's like your people. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, I think one of the misconceptions, I think New Yorkers are helpful. They're helpful. Like if you say, how do you get here? I've done this. or they're, yeah. They are very helpful because they've seen it all. And they're, they're used to dealing with people from all over the world. And so I think they're really good at that. I think the problem is that they're usually in a rush. Uh, and yeah. it's it's sort of like, kind of get out of my way uh and they're they're stressed and they're burdened but uh i do find it very refreshing when people are just calm and polite and it's it's you know i think frankly let's you know bring it back to why we're talking about this stuff i think it's more christian to be kind and polite and friendly that's that's a lot that's mm-hmm. not the only thing about being christian uh but mm-hmm. but it's a big part of it Okay, so what I hear you saying is that Texas is more Christian than New York, and well, I, that's I what think, I'll leave. I think polls would bear that out, you know? Oh, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. go with that then. Um, well, before we get you in too much trouble with your native mm-hmm. land, let's, uh, let's talk about the book. Uh, so you have a book uh, that's entitled Come Forth, which is a 
meditation upon a singular story from John 11, a story about Lazarus being resurrected. And I want to talk about that. And I also know that maybe some of my listeners don't know that story. And so before we get to insider baseball, uh, would you mind just kind of telling the story and then we'll kind of jump into it? I'd love to. So it is commonly called Jesus's greatest miracle. And at the beginning of it's John 11, as you said, uh, it starts out now a certain man was ill. His name was Lazarus of Bethany. He's the uh, brother of Mary and Martha, who are two of Jesus's friends in Bethany, which is the town outside of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, they send word to Jesus that their brother is sick. And interestingly, as I say in the book, they don't say Lazarus, our disciple is, your disciple is sick. Lazarus, our brother is sick. Lazarus, your friend is sick. They say, he whom you love, he whom you love is ill, which is really beautiful. Uh, Jesus gets the message. He's on the other side of the Jordan River. He's kind of escaped from a, a sort of prospective stoning. Um, he's kind of withdrawn with his disciples. Uh, the disciples say, um, you know, maybe he's just asleep. And he's, they says, no, Lazarus is dead. He waits two days, quite mysterious. We'll talk about that in the book, some of the, the reasons for the delay. Finally gets to Bethany. Um, and then the sisters run out and greet him and say, a little bit of a profession of faith, but also a kind of reproach. If Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Very blunt with Jesus. Uh, where have you lain him? They they take him to the tomb. Uh, he he Martha professes one of the sisters her faith in him. You know, I know that you're the Messiah, the Son of God. He kind of ups the ante and says, you know, I'm the resurrection and the life. They go to the tomb. He says, take away the stone. Martha says there will be a stench. Interesting, kind of focusing on the negative. Uh, and then yep. he says. Lazarus come out or Lazarus come forth, which is the, the title of the book is come forth. And he comes out uh, wearing his burial claws. And then Jesus says, untie him and let him go. It is the uh, summit of what uh, people call the book of signs in John's gospel, the first part of uh, John's gospel, as you know. And it really, it's, it's, a, it's, it's my favorite gospel story. And I'm, I, I was really happy to kind of spend five years writing this book uh, and really mm -hmm. diving deep into the story and trying to say, trying to see what it could mean for us today. Mm -hmm. uh, the, one, <clears throat> the one criticism in the book is that I wish you would have written it three years ago, gotten it done a little bit sooner, because when our church was coming out of uh, COVID uh, restrictions and we're coming back in person, I did a series uh, from this story as kind of like the idea of, you know, we're leaving a season and we're coming into something new, and I used the Lazarus story. And so it would have been great because... I could have just used your book instead of having to write all the yeah, sermons. Well, frankly, so, you know, I wish I had known that because I'd have, I would, I, I honestly would have included that in the book. In fact, if you can send me this, this is probably should be offline. <laughs> you know, there's going to be a paperback. I'd love to include that. If you can send me some of those okay. passages, you know, it's so, it's so funny. Well, Look, after you write the book, then you hear all these stories and you think, oh, I could have included that, you know, no, that's a great, that's well, a great it, image of the, of the parish coming forth, you know? Yeah. Well, one of the things that you say is, so you, um, uh, you do these tours with uh, America, America American, Media, America uh -huh. Media, and typically the first stop is what is perceived to be the historical location. And I say perceived, like there's a lot of assumption that this really yep. is. Uh, if if you've ever been uh, to the Holy Lands, you know that maybe some of those locations aren't historically accurate. But this is one that there's a lot of certitude, right? That this is where it yeah. is. Yeah, I mean, it's in a town, really, one of the most beautiful things about this whole story in, in, in its kind of in the contemporary world uh, is that the place where this happened, so it's Bethany, everybody knows Bethany, or most of yeah. your listeners would know Bethany, it's a place where Mary Martha lived, it's right outside of, outside of uh, Jerusalem, it's, you know, the 
Palm Sunday procession starts from around there, Bethany, Bethpage. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the current name of Bethany in Arabic is Al-Azariah, which means mm -hmm. the place of Lazarus, which kind of blew me away. So in Arabic, uh, it is still known as the place of Lazarus. And the tomb that's there has been venerated since, I think, like the fourth century. So it has a really good claim to being the place. And, you know, you have to, we, we always think, oh, you know, how do we know? You know, people would have remembered this stuff and early Christians would have remembered this stuff and passed it on. So it has a really good claim to what scholars call historicity. Yeah, I give the importance of it being the Aramaic name compared to yes. different languages. Well, what's interesting for me is that so 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 originally it was called uh, Bethania, Bethania in Greek. Uh, they're not quite sure what Bethany meant in Aramaic. They think it means house of affliction. House of Bread, there's a lot of different. House of Dates, it's amazing how many different, yeah. how many different kind of possibilities. But today, yeah. um, in, in Arabic, so the, the, it's, it's in Palestinian territory, so this is primarily Muslim territory. They still refer to it as the place of Lazarus, Al-Azariah, which, you know, they could have called it anything. And I just think that's really, sure. really beautiful. Because when you see it in Arabic, I just, what does that mean? Oh, and the person said, oh, that's Al-Azariah, the place of Lazarus. That's so, that's yeah. so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, like you said, it, it adds a layer of historicity to it, which uh, you say in the book specifically, yeah, you, you don't think this is a metaphor. Like you believe literal resurrection. I, I believe this really happened as well. And to have all these signs pointing to the fact that people for 1,700, yeah. 1,800 years that we can point to go like, this really is something that we know is how we understand this territory. So... Yeah, no, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, just the Gospels in general, like you and I were on the same page about this. They happened. Now, they, they, they did the writer of John's Gospel maybe embellish a little bit and edit a tad and maybe change a word here or two? Yes. But I do believe that, as I say in the book, if you were in Bethany that day, you would have seen more or less what the story describes. Jesus coming to the tomb, the sisters greeting him, the tomb being opened up and Lazarus walking out. Now, well, there wasn't, you know, my New Testament professor said there wasn't someone with a tape recorder Right. And the sure. stuff that we know about what Martha and Mary said is passed on, you know, through the oral tradition and it's decades later. But, you know, I think it, this is a true story. And I also look at uh, what scholarship tells us about how we can understand it and, and know that it is a true story. Yeah. OK, I want to get back to uh, the what we leave behind. The, but you I, I got to say here, um, one of the things I found interesting is how you talked about the historical critical method of scholarship, which is very commonly accepted. And it's how most of us like, what is the history? What is, uh, you know, the literary genre? What are all these things that um, I think some people get lost with the word critical yeah. and they hear that as like negative or criticism. Yeah. Um, it, but this is just the way that we're trying to use our minds to honor God and honor these stories that are passed down to us. And I'm curious the way that that is received across the aisle with the Catholic side of Jesus followers which, compared to which uh, probably in the same way that people hear that and they say, oh, you're watering down things and you're going to tell me that you don't believe in anything and that it's all baloney and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, as you were saying, Luke, um, you know, it helps us understand the story better. And, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I, I like to call it like scholarly belief, right? You believe in it and you, mm -hmm. you're able to kind of look at it and say, all right, what do we know about the story? What, what do we know about how the story was put together? One of my favorite examples from this story, from the, from the raising of Lazarus is, uh, we talked about Jesus delaying his, uh, his, his, mm -hmm. his journey from across the Jordan to Bethany, right? He delays two days and we say, well, why is that? Now, 
just taken from the gospel, it's it's not exactly clear. Like if you're just reading the gospel. Now, maybe if you know a little bit about Jesus in John's gospel, John is kind of in command. Jesus is in command always in John's gospel, sure. right? So maybe yeah. you know a little bit about that. But if you know the sort of historical background, which is that at the time, uh, Jewish belief was that the soul hovered over the body for two or three days, yep. right? Which which is, that's part of the historical critical method, like like understanding the history. You say, oh, okay. So maybe what Jesus is doing is holding back a little bit. So as to really remind people, as he says in the reading, Lazarus is dead. That's a really powerful passage. So, so if you know a little bit about the, the history, right, which is just using our minds and read, you read a Bible commentary like the ones that are behind you or behind me, um, it just helps us understand the story better. So why would we not want to understand the story better? But you're right. It is for a lot of people. It's it's kind of threatening and, and it shouldn't be. So one of the things I try to do in this book, Come Forth, is to is to kind of popularize it and to make it accessible to people. Yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of great stuff Thanks. in here. And I think one of the ways that we follow the scriptures uh, command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, like using our mind is is helpful. And so this is one of the ways that we do that is by trying to be faithful and use our mind to understand. That's a great, you know, I never, that is a great insight. I always come away from talking with you with a real, because you're a gifted pastor. That is a great insight. I never thought of that because I thought, yeah, like, I mean, our mind, our mind should love God, but yeah, our mind should be sort of in the service of God. And why would we not want to kind of train our minds to understand God better? That's really, that's very profound. I'm going to see. And honestly, like the reason I love talking to you is because we come at things from just different trainings and different traditions and to go, oh, wait, there's a whole lot I can learn from your side of the aisle compared to my side of the aisle. I mean, I think that. You know, no, it's true. I think that's it's why I want... John 17 talks about unity. Like we learn from each well, other. Well, I'll tell you something funny. As I was saying earlier, like one of the things that is is different from for this book than other books for some reason is that people are coming up with all these insights about Lazarus that I never thought of and I just think oh my god I I should have put that in the book so anyway I'm going to remember that that's a really helpful uh, insight well I mean I feel like there's a lot in there already uh, there's about to say like there's 370 pages or so that's I mean true. that's probably I what 100,000 words I feel like you got well, enough in there I'll tell you one but, I heard the other day if you don't mind which I love yeah, I was it. doing a Zoom call with um Oh, I forget who it was. It was it was a Zoom lecture, and uh, one of the women in the call said uh, that. So we all know the story. So Lazarus is in the tomb. Jesus calls him. At, you know, at some point he is revived, right? And he wakes up in sure. a sense. And she said to me, which I thought was really beautiful, and I am going to put this in kind of the revised edition, that Lazarus on his in the tomb, he's in his grave clause. He has to say to himself, "You know what." No one's ever done this before, but I'm going to do it. Isn't that something? There's, there's, a, there's a. That's a great. Read, it is. Yeah. It is because he, he. It's true. I mean, he has to kind of respond. He ha- now, I, I do put that in the book that Lazarus does have to make a decision to get up yeah. and walk out of that tomb. But I love this idea of like, and we often feel that like I'm the. I feel like I'm the only one that's had to do this. You know what I mean? I'm. I'm my life is so kind of personal and unique and. And I really think that's a really great insight. So, um, says so Lazarus, this, this, and mm. this is the point of the story and, and of the book that his story has a lot to teach us about just our day to day lives. Yeah, 
Yeah. One of the details that I love about uh, the story is that he has to, to remove the grave clothes. Yeah. Like they're still on him. And, and you're like, okay, so you can raise him from the dead, but like he can't magically make the clothes. Like w- what's happening here? But it becomes a metaphor that we all have to remove the grave yeah. clothes. And one of the things that you say is that when you, uh, you talk about people having to leave something behind in the tomb. That's one of the, the practices you do. And what I was trying to get to 20 minutes ago is that American Media, you guys do a tour, uh, the Holy Lands kind of pilgrimage right. tour. Mm-hmm. You go there on first days. Right. Isn't we that go right? the first that we, we're in Galilee, but the right before we go into Jerusalem, it's the first thing we see because it's right outside of Jerusalem. So it's it's our entrance into Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. And so I love that question of like, what are you leaving yeah. in a tomb? So maybe you put the the pastor priest hat on and not just historian and theologian, but go, when you're talking to people and trying to say, okay, this is a spiritual pilgrimage yeah. that you're going on, you're leaving Lazarus's tombs metaphorically, what are you, in the same way that I told our church, hey, we're leaving behind this phase and we're going to a different phase of our life, what are things that you're encouraging people to leave behind in the Well, tomb? I also like that that's also helpful too, because I never thought of it as kind of a phase of life. That's, that's very interesting too, like leaving behind mm. something... Uh, in the past. For me, it's been more because the the tomb is such a a powerful image and it is about death and kind of dying to self. It's one of the things that you really think need to let, you need to let go of in your life and that you need to let die, as we say in our tradition, dying to self. Do do you have that expression in your tradition or dying to self? So so let's say a grudge, a resentment, a disappointment, a a seeming failure, um, a relationship, you know, that that's really keeping you unfree, that's keeping you dead. And so when we go into the tomb and, you know, it's a physical place, you go down, um, I describe it and I have pictures in the book uh, of the tomb. Um, what, what I invite people sort of imaginatively to say, what do you want to leave behind there? And, you know, it can be very powerful for people because we all look, you and I, I mean, everyone thinks that we're perfect and holy because you're a pastor and I'm a priest, but we know, because since we know each other, we know that that's not true. Um, and you know, we all have things that we need to kind of let go of, um, that, that are keeping us bound, that are keeping us unfree. And I, I, I tell you, Luke, you know, when people come out of that tomb, a lot of times they cry, they're crying because it's, it's very powerful. And, but the key thing is to hear God calling you to new life. It's not just about letting something die. It's about someone calling you. It's about a person calling you to new life. Mm -hmm. Can you explain the difference? Cause I think the idea of dying to self you know, Jesus talks about that. If anyone wants to follow me, they must right. carry the cross daily and deny themselves. Like that, we get that. In some ways, maybe the part of the like the religious, the Christian mind, the idea of like sacrifice, like we get that. But sometimes the idea that there is um, that if you lose your life, then you will find it, right? Like that, the metaphor of like going into the tomb in some ways makes more sense. Like, yeah, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. Get rid of. But the idea that like you can experience resurrection now it's kind of harder for us to believe that there is new life for us. I think that's right. And I think uh, people tend to think that it has to be something that's dramatic or life-changing, right? And of course, you know, in different traditions, there, there, is, there are people who are born again, right? And so there are, these, there are these dramatic life changes. But just something, you know, it could be something simple. I mean, the book I talk about in my own life, you know, when I was a young man, in my 20s, um, you know, a lot of it was about like getting people to like me. like, And I think for a lot of people that, you know, like, Am I cool? Do people like me? Do, do I have friends? Who are my friends? Do I have enough friends? That kind of stuff, right? And, you know, I was saying in the book that that can be paralyzing. Like, if you're only doing things 
so that people can like you. So, so for, let's take your example. Let, let's say uh, as a pastor, and I know, I know you don't do this. You know, if, if you said to yourself, I will only preach uh, sermons that everyone will like, you know, yeah, I mean, I see you're shaking your head. Now that's, that's, that's you know, exhausting. exactly. It's exhausting. It's also a burden. You wouldn't, you wouldn't say anything. And so look, that is not, that's not sinful. It's not some sinful thing. It's not that you're not saved already, that you're not a Christian already, mm-hmm. but that would be something that would be a, a burden for you. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, kind of letting die, because when you let that go, when a pastor would let that go, he is freed. He is free to kind of be himself and, you know, be a little more open, that kind of stuff. There are things in all of our lives, disappointments, grudges, um, resentments that we can let go of and that we can hear God calling us to new life. But again, the key is knowing that it's God that's doing this. Lazarus knows that this is Jesus's voice. And so it's not just something that Luke decides, oh, this will be a good thing for me, but it's it's a response to a call. And I, I think that those unfreedoms and the, the, the invitation to let go of the unfreedoms are always, almost always calls from God. Yeah, that's really good. And the way that God calls us and gives us this new life, uh, like for me as pastor, like people pleasing is just something, you know, a, a lot of us struggle with. And eventually you, you some days, sometime you look down and go, this version of Luke is way different than I was 10 years ago. And the need to, to be people pleasing or whatever it is, somehow some way like that that isn't the grave clothes i'm not wearing that anymore and you have this concept you call it um the invisible level of formation i want to read this section uh, but there is also an invisible level of formation for all of us not just jesuits thank you uh for letting me know i appreciate that um that <laughs> that flows underneath it all like a deep current in a river that runs according to its own timetable. Many things educate us in hidden ways, in ways that are just as important as our visible education. We have a retreat that helps us see God or ourselves in an entirely new, new light. We fall in love and out of love. We struggle with an old habit in therapy. We have a difficult relationship with community that must be worked out. A parent gets sick or dies. We have a problem with a job. We have a financial crisis. We suffer a professional disappointment. If we're open to God forming us, we are slowly changed. Right. Can you talk about how we can sense that that slow formational process that God is doing within yeah, us? Yeah, thanks for highlighting that. So it's I I was uh, sort of um, starting to think about this in my work with young Jesuits that uh, there's a visible level of our we call formation training you would say or life. So for yeah. example, yeah. you go to high school, you graduate, you go to college, you graduate, you get a job, you get married. You, these are all things that are kind of public, and you you get a promotion. They're they're public. Sometimes they're very public, like you invite people to a wedding or to a graduation or a baptism. And it's more or less kind of according to uh, Kronos time, right? You know, it takes four years in high school, four years in college. So TikTok time, right? But then there's the Kairos time, and that's kind of flowing underneath it. And that is invisible things. So, for example, let's take – and I'm I'm not um, telling tales out of school. I'm just making this up like for a pastor. Let's say – you have a homily or a sermon that 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 really upsets people and it really causes you to be, uh, you know, ostracized or something. Uh, you have an illness. Um, you have a, a rupture in a family, all the kinds of things that I talked about that that God is kind of there as well. God is kind of asking us to sort of um, learn and be free and be open and be be formed, as we say in the Jesuits, in the same way and maybe in a deeper way. 
in in God's own time. And I, I've always thought that the people who are open to the kind of, so let's just say it's the formal training versus the informal training that God does for us. You have to be open to both. You know, I mean, if you're only yeah. open to the formal training, which is really more common, the other stuff you just, you know, it's like, I don't want to deal with this, you know, and, and we all know people like this. They don't, they don't deal with things that they, that, that God is asking them to look at. So, so it's basically sort of seeing God's invitation of freedom in all parts of our lives, in, in, in every part of our life, the stuff that's public and the stuff that's private, the stuff that's formal and the stuff that's informal, the stuff that's visible and the stuff that's more invisible. Yeah. I'm not sure this is exactly uh, kosher in the 12-step community, but we had uh, one of my, my friends at church had a big 10-year anniversary or 10-year uh, sobriety. Right. And so we publicly just celebrate it, like in service, right. surprised him, called him up, and uh, like you know, his wife was supportive. And again, the anonymous part of AA might have been a little bit overlooked in that point, but I feel like celebrating those moments are, are such a unique thing because... It's hard to really have a here's a nerd word uh, a punctiliar uh, like moment of progress to go like this yeah. is the moment where we're celebrating something actually happened where it's hard to say hey yeah. I was uh, I was rude I lost my temper with my kids ten times last year and this year it's only been two times like how do you celebrate that but those are the things that are really like life changing yeah. that you, it's hard to like make them tangible. that's a great point and you know your your comment about um... Uh, you know, being a pastor and, you know, you said gradually feeling free of the need for everyone to like you. There's no one yeah. moment. It's not like you wake up and you say, yeah. oh, it's January 1st and I don't need anyone to like me anymore. It is gradual. Yeah. But you're right. I think those things should be celebrated and marked and acknowledged. And one really profound thing that um, uh, one of my spiritual directors, a guy I talked about my prayer, my, my spiritual life said to me once was, which I found really beautiful. I was talking about, long story short, this guy who I've been counseling who slowly kind of came to belief and he was really he had no religious tradition and he really slowly came to believe in jesus and it took about uh six months seven months to join the course of retreats anyway long story short i said to my spiritual director it's almost like a miracle and he said no it is a miracle and then he said i will never forget this is it any less a miracle if it happens over six months and i was like wow because you know you think of the miracle as you know, the yep. withered man, is, his hand is, is fixed immediately, or Lazarus, sure. you know. And I thought that was kind yeah. of beautiful, that it is it is kind of a miracle that these things happen, even if it's even if it's slow. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the ability to see those miracles is so important oh, for yeah. us, to be able to celebrate and to acknowledge, like, there is something that... Ha- it's just hard to create an environment where you go... To have someone say, hey, this has been happening with, you know, a couple of retreats and this guy I've been praying for and, I, and, you know, he's someone I care about and I love. And now he, like, there's not, not everyone has that person to go, wait, this, this actually uh, that wasn't is totally, We all need that. That's totally true. And the Jesuits, as you know, we have this practice of praying every night and looking back in the day and looking at small things, but, um, <clears throat> and sometimes big things. But you're right, Luke. I mean, there aren't many times where we can, and that's why I think that's a great example of, you know, sobriety for 10 years. There aren't many times we can look back and say, well, I'm a different person, right? I, I. I may have come out of the tomb and it may have taken me, you know, 10 years, right? Lazarus coming out of the tomb, 10 years. But it's still beautiful and it's still a freeing, right? And I think that's a really profound point because we have to be able to to celebrate those moments because it reminds us that they're really happening. And it's also part of being grateful. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was about to say this 
completely ignoring the fact that I think you taught me this, where you guys, uh, the gratitude practice that you guys do every day, this is, and I think the line that you said years ago that I've said it so many times that I think it's my line now, but it's easier to see God in the past and in the present. Yeah. But the more that you learn to acknowledge where God was in the past, you learn to see God more in the present. Right. That's man. So I'm, I'm, I, you need to pay me some royalties on that. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think I referenced you the first time I said it in a sermon, and the second time it was I once heard, and then the third time it's just, I once heard, right? Yeah. and the third time yeah. it's like as I always say, <laughs> exactly. You know, well, I'm exactly. sure I heard that from someone too. Well, actually, it's funny. Yeah. One of the and and it's funny the 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 place where I first heard that um, was uh, someone referring to, and you'll know your scripture better than I do. Uh, Moses not being able to see God face, God's face, but being able to see God pass. Yes, right? yeah. Um, which is that, when you say it in the cleft of the rock. That's something. Yeah. So he sees God pass, which I was like, now that's interesting. So he, he sees, you know, as we look, we look backwards, basically. So um, oh, isn't that interesting? I like that. Yeah. Just, because you see the backside of God. That's what he saw. Yeah, you see the because, passage of God versus like face to face. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it is. Um, so yeah, it, it's you're right, and and to be able to stop and say where have I been freed is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you you mentioned this earlier how um, the sisters see Jesus, he shows up, and they make this statement of faith. Yes, Lord, if you were here, things would have been different. And then uh, Jesus says this line about like you know your your brother's going to rise again, and then expressing what I believe to be the common first century uh, expectation for the resurrection where they go yes i know he will rise again um what is the text right, on, the, on uh, the last day he will rise again on the on the last day yeah and so that's everyone except the sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection to which i always say that is why they're sad you see oh, and everyone always groans in my church terrible. but you're not going to forget it you're not going to forget it you know they're the ones who are sad because they don't believe we'll okay but <laughs> it's terrible um I'll never i live for those i'm groans. gonna use that now i'm gonna say my my friend pastor yeah. luke yeah yeah, don't, maybe you don't have to quote me. You say, I heard someone once say. Um, but so they express the common attitude that there is resurrection on the last days. But then Jesus moves to, to what uh, many call, and you refer to this phrase in, in the book, a realized eschatology. Yeah, I love that. Using one of the seven I am statements in John's God. He says, I am. So can you describe what you think that phrase realized eschatology means? Yeah, first of all, one of the great things about using the word words realized eschatology is you can like totally impress all your friends. Like say, oh, yeah. that's a realized that's eschatology. So, so eschatology, mm -hmm. the, the eschaton is the last things, right? The last things, yeah. ology is kind of study of. So uh, it, it's the study of the last things, or it's a, a look at a way of looking at the last things, the end times. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, a realized eschatology is, is that those things are present to us now. And, and I quote a couple mm -hmm. of the scripture scholars in my book who say, which I think is really wonderful. Martha says... You know, as you say, I know that my brother will, you know, would be raised on the last day, you know, and I, I believe this. And it's really, it's beautiful. She, you know, Martha's sure. human and she's, you know, this first century woman in Judea. And that's, that's pretty great that she knows that. Okay. Yeah. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And one of the things that just gives me goosebumps even to say that is that, um, as one scripture scholar said, the thing that she is looking for in the present is here now. Yeah. And so it's realized because it's present already. And, you know, an encounter with Jesus is an encounter with the reign of God. He is the reign of God. And so he makes, so in the reign of God, everybody is whole. Everybody is listened to. Everybody is cured. Uh, and it's, 
one of the one of the interesting so so it's just a beautiful thing that Jesus is there already and of course he not only says that he shows that right by raising mm-hmm. their brother from the dead it's not just all words um one of the really cool things Luke and I um and, you know I know we're a little bit of both bible nerds is that um a number of scripture scholars say uh, this is Mary's great, when she says, I know that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is to come, that this is her great moment, right? Um, that's one school of thought. Another school of thought says, no, 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 no. When anyone in John's gospel says, I know, right? Like, I know my brother will raise brides in the last day. They don't have it all. Or, some, you know, they say, I see, but I'm blind, oh. right? And that Jesus mm-hmm. is actually upping the ante. I am the, this is far more than Martha says. So uh, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. I am life. I mean, that is really something. So one of the things I like about um, sort of going into these uh, scripture passages deeply, and the, the book is not just biblical exegesis, it's spirituality, travelogue, a little bit sure. of cultural yeah, history, uh, is, is you can see where even scripture scholars disagree. And I, I sort of leave it up to the reader to make up his or her mind. Yeah. And uh, I, I love the way that you could talk about your travels and how important that was. I think you have the line of, the uh, the Holy Lands are the fifth gospel. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, I've only been uh, over one time, but I found it to be very accurate from my experience as well. Now, uh, we typically like to have an opportunity whenever you're on for you to explain Catholicism to me sure. and just try to explain something. Sure. And so, in if the book, yeah, in the section of the book about um, let us go to Judea again, you talk about the uh, Vatican II. Yeah. Or in 1965, the council released one of the most influential documents in the history of the Catholic Church. It was called... Nostra Nostra Aetate is how they say it. I know how to translate it to English, which means in our age. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, No, it's hard. I mean, my English is a lot better. No. Yeah. I'm not a Latin. Okay. Well, I mean, you sound more convincing than I would That's because I've said Um, those two words many times, so... Whatever it is, it's working for you. Okay, so explain this to me. So... Dumb this down for us Protestants who don't really understand what the council is in this document and how important this was. Sure. So the Second Vatican Council, which was around the early 1960s, was convened because um, one of the main reasons was ecumenical relations, right? And so before mm-hmm. the Second Vatican Council, the church was, I, I don't want to stereotype it, but in terms of other religions, the theology was... Extra ecclesium nulla sanctus. Outside of the church, there is no salvation. And that means outside the Catholic church. Now, that was all the way up until the 1960s. And of course, now look, there were theologians who were kind of developing that and praying about that and thinking about that. And then certainly when it came to the Jewish people, right? I mean, you know, before uh, the Second Vatican Council, in our Good Friday liturgies, we prayed for, I can't even say this, we prayed for the perfidious Jews, Right. I mean, really terrible stuff. So so the Second Vatican Council was a real updating of the church, uh, a, a modernizing of the church. Um, there were two ways of looking at it. What's called aggiornamento, which is updating, but ressourcement in the French, which is kind of going back to the sources. One of the great things that did was in this document, Nostre Tate, um, on um, non-Christian religions. There's also one on Christian religions. It talked about the Jews and it talked about. Uh, our relation with the Jews, our elder brothers and sisters in the faith, um, that we couldn't, you no longer, um, nor should we have ever, you know, blame the death of Jesus on the Jews, all Jews, either back then or now. I mean, really, historically, we go back to history, only Pontius Pilate could do that. 
So why am I bringing that up in the book? Because in John's gospel, they talk about um, hoiudaioi, um, the Jews, which a lot of scholars put into quotes in, a, in pretty negative ways. And so in, in order to look up this passage in Lazarus's gospel, uh, excuse me, in order to look at this um, passage from John's gospel in Lazarus, which talks about the Jews several times, I had to really look at how that phrase has been used, is used, and should be used. Um, and I used a lot of the work of a Jewish scholar named Amy Jill Levine. Basically, what we need to understand is that when John is kind of setting up the Jews, he's, he's using them as kind of the opponents of Jesus. We have to remember Jesus was Jewish, you know, so, yeah. so it's, it's, it's a real chapter against anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism. Yeah. Well, uh, AJ Levine is brilliant. She's been on the podcast a handful of times. Uh, love talking with her. And I think she helps a lot of us see, uh, I think she has a book called The Gospels Through Jewish Eyes, maybe, uh, she, or something uh, like that. She has that. The, the, the Misunderstood Jew, which is about Jesus. And then she yeah. has the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which is really great, too. Yeah. Yes, yes. So <laughs> she's, and the Jesus, the short stories of yeah. Jesus, um, which I think was the last one she's been on the podcast talking about. But uh, the, the point is, there's... Uh, it's very easy to forget Jesus was a Jew, and some scholars would even argue that Jesus wasn't just a Jew, but that he was a Pharisee himself. Mm -hmm. And so that the way that the Gospels talk about the Jews or even Pharisees, possibly in the context of Jesus not only being a Jew, which is not debatable, but Jesus also being one of those religious leaders, I think would kind of mute some of the ways that we have used that language to be very inflammatory and anti-Semitic. Yeah, and in my book, in that chapter um, from Come Forth on uh, it's called Let Us Go to Judea, because that's that's where that kind of is highlighted. Yeah. Um, I use a lot of Amy Jill Levine's uh, stereotypes that she says a lot of Christian preachers use. And I would imagine if I say one of them, people on your podcast will say, I've heard that so many times. You know, um, mm -hmm. Jewish law was a burden impossible to bear. And Jesus yep. was the yep. one who freed everyone from that burden. Uh, Jewish leaders were misogynistic. Only Jesus was the one who loved women. Uh, and boy, I tell you, there are some that I really have have used myself until I read her book. So particularly in this gospel passage, the raising of Lazarus, where the Jews are mentioned three or four times. Right. And in negative, largely negative ways, we just have to be really careful. We have to be really careful how we use that. And that's why a lot of scholars and including in my book, when they talk about the Jews in John's gospel, it's in quotes. Right. Because we have to really set yeah. that off. So, you know, they're not talking about all Jews back then or now. For sure. For sure. It's a lot like a Republican talking about the problems of the Republican Party or a Democrat talking about the problems of the Democratic Party. It's just like there's a different context when it's your people that you're talking about. And obviously the Johannine community was putting that together yeah, with and, their people. And, you know, them. as my, my New Testament professors, and I'm sure you, yours told you, like the gospel writers, which is a really profound insight when you think about it, the gospel writers, I mean, all saints, all holy men and wanted to do the right thing. We're not interested in making Jesus's opponents look good, right? And so they're not trying yep. to make the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the and the and the, the, the chief priests and the temple officials look good. Sure. So we have to be we have to be sort of attentive to that. That that's another part of the historical critical method. Uh, that literally was what I was going to say. I mean, that is one of the benefits of doing the scholarship. To go, all right. There's a lot of things that have happened in 2,000 years since this was written. Let's put some of that into context. Uh, let me circle back to one of the things that you said. Um, Pre-1960s, y'all believed uh, you were the only Christians. The tradition, I'm a part of the Churches of Christ, that's one of the things that, even within Protestants, that we would say other Protestants aren't Christians because they don't go to a Church of Christ church, our small little denomination, which 
It's like the 13th biggest denomination in America. You're like, there's so many other Christians. Why do you think it is that so many of us become so insular with our group being the only group there is? Now, that's a great question. Um, I think it's kind of human nature. I think we have to set ourselves off from people. Now, of course, you know, in generally speaking, Christians, you know, I believe have the right way. I mean, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But then this idea that, you know, only we are going to heaven uh, is, I think it's just a kind of a sad, um, you know, residue of of our humanity. Uh, I think I see it all as kind of one big church right now for me, you know, being Catholic is is my whole life and being a Jesuit Mm -hmm. is my whole life. But I also uh, think, now I don't know if this will offend any, you know, listeners, but, you know, there are certainly Jewish people in heaven. You know, and I would be upset if my Jewish friends were not in heaven, right? Um, now, I don't know how this works in terms of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, but um, I think, you know, God's mercy is a lot bigger than what we generally um, can imagine. We tend to think of God's mercy as like our mercy, which is very limited. And, you know, the gospel reading um, for this uh, coming Sunday is about the, the landowner and the tenants, right? And God. Yeah. pays the people who are working for an hour the same that he pay, pays the people that were working or, or the landowner pays the same. And that doesn't fit with us, you know, because the landowner is not just just, but merciful. And so mm-hmm. I, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's just a, it's a residue of our humanity that we tend to say us and them when it's really all about us yep. for Jesus. No, yeah. amen to that limited view on mercy. That reminds me of uh, David Bentley Hart. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you know who I, that is. Absolutely. But he was once in the, yeah, he's a brilliant person. I understood maybe 14% of what he said. He's just way, way over my head. Um, but once he, he made the observation uh, in a podcast where he said, many of us kind of think God's wrath or God's vengeance is going to look like our wrath or our yes. vengeance. And so in the same way that we have a limited picture of what mercy looks like, we also have a limited picture of what divine justice and retribution looks like. And I think, thank God that... Uh, it's God's way of doing it, not mine, because mine is quite small. Uh, yeah, and I mean, you know, the, I was just reading, uh, looking something, you know, your ways are not my ways, as high as the heavens are above. We, we hear this over and over again, yeah. but, you know, it, it's I guess it's human nature to just sort of anthropomorphize, anthropomorphize God. But even when mm-hmm. God actually became human, right? I mean, you would think that that would be enough to show people that, I mean, Jesus's way is not the way of, vengeance. He's on the cross. He doesn't strike everyone dead, you know, from the cross. Even that, even Jesus coming and, and showing us what it, what it means uh, is still hard for us to, to, to grasp. And I, like I said, we, we, we need to be forgiving of people like Martha and Mary who don't get it, but um, you know, we should, we should be a little bit higher standards because we do know the end of the story, you know? We, yeah, we do know the end of the story, but unfortunately uh, the character that I probably most resonate with myself uh, are the sisters because they're, um, well, they probably get it more than I do most of the time, but nevertheless, uh, the book, great. Thank you. Again, only criticism. I wish you would have had this done beforehand so I could have just ripped this off for my three or four week, uh, sermon series on this text, but, uh, well, this has been great. Me. Thank forgive you. Forgive me for not doing it early. <laughs> yeah. My, my, <laughs> for, you know, my regret is that I didn't know you of these great uh, sermons. I'll put them, put that in the revised and expanded paperback. I don't know if they're great. They're definitely sermons, but I don't know if they're great or not. Um, and the problem with, you know, Protestant sermons is that they're really, really long. Like they're like 35 minutes. Yeah. And so it's like, you'd be run out on a, you'd be run out on a rail, you know? 
How long do you get? Are you like the 12 minute kind? Yeah, the Pope said, the Pope said seven minutes. <laughs> now we have a, we, now the other the difference is, you know, that that's the main part of your service. I mean, we have other parts of the service. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah, if you go over, certainly, certainly, if you go over 20 minutes, people, people will really complain. I mean, they will really like, because it, you know, people expect the mass to be an hour and they're, they need to get in the parking lot at 12 yeah. o'clock, you know, so. We got, we got to watch the game. Um, so I was preaching at a friend's church, and it's a black church, and, and uh, he's like, hey, if you don't go 45 right. minutes, people are going to feel like they didn't get their money's worth. Yeah. And I literally, last time I preached at a black church, took two sermons and just like, we're just going to mail them. I worked, in Kenya. Together. I worked in Kenya for two years, and they would regularly preach uh-huh. 35, 40 minutes. And I remember saying to one of the uh, Kenyans, I was in a mass, <clears throat> and I said, how oh, don't you like that homily? And uh, which I thought was beautiful. They said, uh, he must love us a lot to spend so much time with us. So it was about spending oh. time with them, you know. But I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, this always makes me laugh. So Palm Sunday, of course, you know, we read the whole passion narrative on Palm Sunday. And yeah, I often yeah. say, you know, and then there's a homily. And so the passion narrative, I mean, that could be 20, 25 minutes. I mean, the whole thing. Yeah. And so I, my rule is really, if it's a, if it's a long gospel, it's a short homily, particularly on Palm Sunday. They, I mean, they also don't need, they've just heard it. I, there's not much I can add to it. So I got Mm -hmm. up once and I said, um, you know, and whatever the end of the, uh, the, the gospel was praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I said, well, now, you know, um, the, the tradition is long gospel, short homily. And I gave this gospel, I gave this homily. And at the end, someone came up to me and said, I thought you said short homily. <laughs> so it was like, you know, it was like five minutes, but not short enough for that guy. Yeah. Okay. So once on Palm Sunday, we decided to tell the story with our kids in. And so we actually had a live donkey oh. and one of, one of our ministers, you know, dressed up as Jesus and, you know, the donkey comes on the stage and the kids love it and they're all happy. And then after the service, one of the prisoners said to another prisoner, and the story got relayed to me. He goes, why do we have a jackass on the stage? We already have enough every week on stage. And I was like, that's, that's really that's, funny. Well, uh, I mean, I know you just called me a jackass, but that's uh, funny. That is pretty funny. I'll tell you something funny. Um, I was in, as I said, I was in Kenya. Now, I, so here I am. I'm a, th- you know, like you. I'm thoroughly American. And so we're in New yep. York and in Philadelphia when we were growing up. Did we get palms from, from, for Palm Sunday? I remember that we would get them from Florida. They would come in, they'd fly in the the long strips. I'm sure you get the same Mm -hmm. ones from Florida. Okay. So I'm in Kenya and I say to, uh, this is so embarrassing. I was telling this the other night and I'm, I'm, I'm working in, I was helping out at this parish in, in rural Nairobi. Okay. Now just imagine the kind of the scene. And I'm thinking to myself, now, how are they going to get those palms from Florida? Like here, <laughs> honest to God. And I said, where do you, it's just another Jesuit who was the pastor. So where do you get the palms from? And he just burst out laughing. He said, did you look out the window? <laughs> There's palm trees. And so people would bring the palms. I mean, like they would, yeah. you know, the big fan palms, which you probably have down there. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was so funny. Yeah. Let me tell you something really. This is a total digression. On mm-hmm. um, Palm Sunday, well, I'd never seen this before. You might try this. They had a, okay. uh, a chicken wire uh, wrapped around a cross. Okay. Imagine that. So they have okay. a big cross. They have chicken wire wrapped around it. And everyone 
during the procession brought a palm up or a flower and they placed it in the chicken wire. Now you can see what's going to happen. So that by the end, it was this beautiful, like, cross that was just blooming with flowers. It was really pretty. And I'd never seen that. Now, you can't do that in New York because there aren't any flowers around. But in Nairobi, it really worked. That's beautiful. And I think I... I think I really might steal that idea. That's that's Isn't great. It? Now you need you need it. Yeah, you need I love that. that. Now the thing is, in Nairobi, there's a lot of palms and a lot of flowers around. So, uh-huh. but it was it's so beautiful. And at the end, it was just like this beautiful, great image. But anyway, so if you're in Nairobi, you don't it. have to worry about palms on Palm Sunday. That's my lesson. Okay, well, if uh, all my listeners in Nairobi, uh, <laughs> just make sure you remember that. Um, but the rest of my listeners, wherever you are, uh, the new book is come forth. It uh, is it out right it now? It's out in print. An ebook and audio. I read the audio book. Okay. I mean, the book is great. I think y'all would love to hear uh, Father James like reading it to you, like Audible. Like that's, I mean, that's a great option too. Um, but uh, anyway, congratulations on the new book. Uh, and it's great to talk to you. Thank you for the time. Thank you so much, my friend. Always a pleasure to, to be with you. And, uh, you know, looking forward to seeing you at my next book or earlier. Yes, sir. That sounds like a plan. 